To this day, I still remember a message that Louis Giglio delivered to several thousand college students uh, gathered at a conference. Uh, it was the Passion Conference. And his message was entitled, Worship That Thing That We Do. And it was incredible, and it has stuck with me all of those years ever since. And that message, having heard that message, literally changed my definition of the word worship from uh, worship is what we do when we sing on Sunday mornings. It changed the definition of worship for me to worship literally involves our entire life, our whole life. And I'll admit, I, ha I do have a couple of bugaboos when it comes to terminology. Uh, terminology, for some reason, is just really important to me. Like when someone says the word irregardless, it's like kind of fingers down a chalkboard for me. Like there is no such word as irregardless. You don't need the ear at the beginning. It's just regardless. Am I right, Scott? Okay. Amen. Thank you. It's just, a, I'll, I'll admit, it's just, a, it's just a bugaboo of mine. I don't know where it came from. My mom probably won't hear this message, so I can go ahead and say it to you, but she's the worst one of them all. <laughs> like, every time she uses the word regardless, it's irregardless, and I just want to be like, Mom, you don't have to say the ear. Whatever. There, I have a couple other uh, bugaboos whenever it comes to, to church terminology. Like, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable when someone refers to the two steps here in front of me as an altar. It just makes me a little bit uneasy uh, in, in the New Testament church and New Testament worship, or, or when you talk about the worship center, uh, a lot of churches have it, uh, you know, signage. Gordon, you remember this, the, the, the discussion was, do we, when we put signs up, do we call it the worship center, do we call it a gematorium, do we call it uh, this way, you know, walk through these doors. We ended up with auditorium, okay, because my bugaboo is that the worship center of your life is wherever you are literally standing at that moment in time. The, worship, the center of worship for your life is your entire life given to him. Invite Jesus into your heart is another one. The sinner's prayer has become over the years for me literally just a, a prayer, a, a Protestant ritual to recite without actually considering what the prayer is supposed to embody. God doesn't give salvation in response to just mere words, okay? Faith in Christ alone is the only instrument that lays hold of saving salvation, of true salvation, so, just going into that, like that little introduction is I don't deal well with cliches for some reason. It's just a bugaboo of mine. So, for the purpose of this morning's message, I want us all to be on the same page about what worship, that term, actually embodies. And so, let me give you just a few quotes um, from people who have articulated the definition of the term worship. Louis Giglio, again, I mentioned him. His will be the first on the screen for you. In his series, Worship, That Thing We Do, defines worship as this. He says, worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is. And you'll notice that there's a period there. And what he has done, there's a period there, expressed in and by the things we say and sing and the way we live. Harold Best, I had to read this guy's book whenever I was in college at Southwest Baptist. He said that worship is the sign that in giving myself completely to someone or something, I want to be mastered by it. Think about that for just a second. William Barclay wrote, true, genuine worship is when man, through God's spirit, attains to friendship and intimacy with God. True and genuine worship is not to come to a certain place it is not to go through a certain ritual or, or liturgy. It's not even to bring certain gifts. 
True worship is when the spirit, the immortal and invisible part of man, speaks and meets with God, who is immortal and invisible. You remember the the verse where Jesus says to the woman at the well, true worship will be in spirit and in truth. Neither on this mountain or that mountain. True worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. John Piper articulates it this way. He said, worship is literally what we were created for. It is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of his glory, and he created us so that we would see his glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. The church needs to build a common vision of what worship is and what she is gathering to do on Sunday morning and scattering to do on Monday morning. And he says that strong affections for God, rooted in and shaped by the truth of Scripture, this is the bone and marrow of true biblical worship. So what he's basically saying is that all of us, every single one of us, worship something or someone. It's literally the activity of our life. And, and let me, we are really, really good at worshiping. And it's because that's what God created us to do. Last year, my wife and I had a chance to drive out to Denver, Colorado for two days, I think it was. And um, she had never been to an NFL game. And I certainly wasn't going to let her first NFL experience be at Arrowhead Stadium. <laughs> so we made... <laughs> we made the drive to Denver, Colorado to uh, see the Lord's team play the Broncos. Um, <laughs> blasphemy, you said. One of, my, one of my friends, his name is Steve Hall. He's worked on the chain gang for the Broncos for years and years. He sold us his uh, season tickets. It was a sold-out game. And that Sunday morning, I remember thinking of just how great of an example or, or a literal picture of how we as humans worship. That morning, Micah and I got up early and we attended the church where I used to serve as one of the worship pastors. It's Riverside Baptist Church. It sits up on top of Diamond Hill. And once the service was over, we walked from Diamond Hill less than a mile down the sidewalk to um, Mile High Stadium where the Broncos play. When we were worshiping, Riverside, there, there were probably about 300 people gathered that morning in an auditorium that used to easily seat several thousand. So we go from that, Diamond Hill, down to the Broncos Stadium, where over 76,000 people gathered that day um, at Sports Authority Field. Many of them, a lot of them, had obviously been there all morning long, tailgating, like since before the sun came up. And as the game started... Uh, and the Broncos football team ran onto the field, the stadium literally shook beneath our feet. And I looked over at Micah, and her eyes were this big just from feeling the, the noise of the crowd and the stadium under her feet shaking with this powerful roar of the crowd. And I thought to myself, we are very, very good at worshiping. Now, what I don't want you to hear from what I just said is that football games are inherently bad, okay? That's not what I'm saying except for the Raiders, okay? Tory, Tory Brashears, you know where you're out there somewhere. You were saved from that, praise the Lord. <laughs> it, football games are not inherently bad, okay? Football things are, are a good activity. They're fun to be a part of. They're fun to watch. But 
whenever 76,000 people gather and it is the ultimate thing in their life, the ultimate object of their worship is whenever it becomes literally idolatry. Idolatry is whenever we take something that God has given us that's good and we make it an ultimate thing in our life, something that, um, it's something that is smaller than God, and we give it our attention, our affection, all of our time, money, whatever. That's idolatry, and there are many idols that are good things, but we have made them into ultimate things, and they've taken God's place in our life, and we depend on them to give us meaning and purpose in our life. That's the definition. It's the essence of idolatry. And John Fame, he's a Reformed theologian and professor. He said this, redemption is the means but worship is the goal. In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history. It's the goal of the whole Christian story. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life seen as a priestly offering to God. So now that we've kind of given some ideas, some framework to the word worship, we know from these quotes that songs do not equal worship. If you're a mathematician, that, that little uh, sentence right there, songs do not equal worship. Songs are a part of worship. They are a means of worship, okay? If the songs are true of us and the songs are true of God. If the songs that we're singing um, are in spirit and in truth. So now that we've kind of got that little definition out of the way, we're operating that from now on, during the sermon, whenever we say worship, we can understand that in this context of this message, that we're talking about singing together as worship, okay, as one of the, the means of worship that we do in our lives. So the first point that you have on your sermon notes is this, Roman number one, the purpose of corporate worship. And to quote here from a, a sermon that Tim Hopped preached over, preached over eight years ago, um, I was telling Ashley this, this morning, she said, do you mean like you just used his sermon kind of as an outline or something to go off? And I was like, no, literally like the first three points of my message are exactly from Tim, <laughs> Tim Hopp's words, because I couldn't say him any better. So these first three points come from a sermon that he preached about eight years ago. And he said, if ever there was a time when the church needed a comprehensive biblical theology of worship, it is right now. Why do we sing in worship? In Colossians 3, chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul provides us the answer. So if you have a Bible, let's turn there again this morning to Colossians 3, 16, where you can read it on the screens. It says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So based on this text, Tim gave three reasons why we sing as a part of the regular Sunday morning experience. And they're in ascending order, meaning, in other words, that they build on each other. The third reason that I'll give you this morning is more important than the first one that I'm going to give you. The first reason that we sing together is for our benefit— for our benefit, that we may be saturated in the truth. Ultimately, we know that we sing to glorify God. We sing to magnify God, to make much of God and much of his son Christ in this place when we gather to sing. And in glorifying him, in magnifying him, we find our ultimate purpose. Is Haley Jones still here this morning? Haley Jones? Yep. 
Haley Jones, what is the chief end of man? Did everybody hear it? No. The chief end of man, she knows it. I knew she, I knew she would know it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's our purpose, why we were created. We sing literally to own and affirm the word. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when we say that our singing on Sunday morning is God-centered, it doesn't mean that we ourselves don't receive any benefit from it. Does that make sense so far? So let's clarify one other thing. What is the word of Christ that, that he, the Apostle Paul is talking about? Well, the word of Christ, speaking broadly, is the entirety of the word of God, canonized. Many of you are holding it open right now in your hands. But specifically, the word of Christ is the gospel of Christ's saving work that brings life into dead and unbelieving hearts. So Paul says, as you sing, let that gospel message saturate your thoughts and your emotions. Let the gospel permeate your soul when you sing. So the content then of our singing here in this place is apparently very, very important. The content or the, the lyrics of what we sing need to accurately convey the gospel. The lyrics that we sing here on a Sunday morning should cause the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, richly to dwell in us. Matt Boswell, one of the upcoming new hymn writers, he's written several hymns that we've sang here already on a Sunday morning. He writes this, he says, if we are convinced of the primacy of gospel-centered ministry, we should surely practice gospel-centered singing. The songs of our churches must be fluent in the gospel. So he gives four things that we do on Sunday morning, or whatever, four things that he does whenever he writes a new hymn or a, a new song. He says, we sing to God as the holy creator of all things, who is worthy of worship. We sing of man, and we sing of our sinful nature, our alienation from God, and our need for forgiveness. Thirdly, we sing of Christ, who is fully God and fully man, who lived a perfectly sinless life and died on the cross to bear the wrath of God. And fourthly, we sing a response to God. In, in these songs of consecration and repentance, faith and praise, we joyfully respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. So the second thing, Roman numeral number two, the second reason we sing is for others' benefit, that they may be strengthened in the truth. So when Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell within you, the you there is a plural you. He's talking to all of us. He's talking to all of you. It's in the second person. Uh, literally in Tim's manuscript, he used the word y'all. <laughs> so when y'all sing, that's who he's talking. It's a second person plural. I, that popped out on the page of me because I've literally never heard him say that word. And I would have loved to have heard it eight years ago because it would have been hilarious. <laughs> Anyway, Paul is speaking to the church. When we, the church, gather to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we are actually teaching, admonishing, exhorting one another as the body of Christ. That's an, that's an incredible, amazing thought. So when a person over here on this side of the room hears voices from all the rest of this side of the room over here, they are receiving teaching and admonishing, encouragement, 
exhortation in the word of Christ. It's amazing to think that whenever you come here and you sing loudly, that you are teaching and exhorting and encouraging someone else here that morning. So don't just come and stand with your hands in your pocket. Sing loudly. Sing loudly to God and sing to one another. The third thing is, the third and the highest reason that we sing is for God's blessing, that he may be praised for the truth. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians chapter 1 says, in love he predestined us to Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things to the counsel of whose will? Of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of whose glory? His glory, to the praise of his glory. We worship God for who he is, period and for what he has done, period. Paul David Tripp says that corporate worship, whenever I say corporate worship, meaning what we're doing this morning, gathered together to sing, to open his word, corporate worship is designed to remind you and me that in the center of all things is a glorious and gracious king, and that king is not you. So, Let's move on to this, the planning of corporate worship. Before I ever put a song on, on, the, on the order of service for Sunday morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to mind the songs that coincide best with the scripture that will be preached that morning. So literally, as I convert Tim or Gordon's message from a manuscript or an outline to the screens that you see behind me, I'm, I'm trying to think as, as I'm converting that manuscript to what you'll see, I'm, I'm trying to think of songs. And I'm, I'm waiting and watching for songs to come to, to come to mind. And I pray before I ever start converting that manuscript that, that literally the Spirit would guide and lead those songs to, to come to mind that would illuminate the Scripture that's being taught that day. And by the way, some of Tim's messages are easier than others <laughs> to think of songs like, for instance, this morning was really easy to pick songs. It's about worship, right? Try to take a sermon like Fallen, Fallen is Babylon the Great and come, up <laughs> and come up with a song idea. Like, good luck. Anyway, our worship literally on Sunday morning, this, the songs that we sing literally is guided by Scripture. And if you haven't noticed by now, every song that we sing on Sunday is an attempt to illuminate the particular Scripture being preached that morning. A church's songs should contain nothing more or less than the words, the paraphrases, or the ideas of Scripture. And I am so very thankful to be a part of a ministerial staff um, 
who was involved in the planning of Sunday morning, as well as the worship team. Um, every, each week, Gordon and Tim and I sit down and talk through every song, every element, every transition of the morning worship service, and we pray that every single Sunday morning when we are gathered, that this congregation would be pointed to Christ. Every week, that's our goal. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that's Christ-centered. Third thing is the parameters of corporate worship. I thought it would be a really good idea this morning to convey to you what uh, your philosophy of worship is here at First Baptist Nixa since you hired me to be here. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever actually shared this uh, with the entire church. I think some of the members of the praise team have been able to read through it before, but in my early 20s, after having led um, for many, many student retreats and many in, uh, real encounters with Brad Bennett, loved that guy and had a great time uh, traveling with him and leading music for him, um, I started to realize that I needed some, I needed something on paper, I needed something written down, I needed a philosophy of worship, I needed guardrails. Um, in this worship ministry and music ministry. I needed to be able to articulate my deep convictions about uh, worship, about corporate worship specifically. And, and the churches who were looking to hire me as their worship pastor also wanted to know what my philosophy of worship was. And so I needed something written down. And at the time, I was just starting to read John Piper and was completely enamored with the depth and the accuracy of his biblical teaching. And first thing I thought to do was to go look up Bethlehem Baptist Church and ask, what is Bethlehem Baptist Church philosophy of worship? And literally over the years, I have stuck pretty close to that philosophy of worship because it's exactly how I would have tried to articulate it. it just It was way better than how I would have articulated it. And so through the years, I've reworded things here and there, but here's what my philosophy of corporate worship is. Number one, that our worship is God-centered, that God be magnified here in this place, not us. The second thing is that our worship be guided by Scripture. The content of our singing, praying, welcoming, teaching, giving, and going will always conform to the truth of Scripture. The content of the Bible will be woven all throughout everything we do in corporate worship and will be the ground of our appeal to any authority. Number three, desperation. We draw near to God Draw near to God and he will draw near to you from James 4, 8. We do not just direct ourselves towards God, but we earnestly seek his drawing near to us. And we believe that in singing to God, he draws near to us in power and he makes himself known and felt for the edification of the church and for salvation of unbelievers in our midst. The fourth thing is this, intellect and emotion or head and heart songs that kindle clear thinking about the truths of the gospel, songs that cause our intellect to overflow into the deep, strong, authentic, and lasting emotions towards God. Number five, earnestness and intensity. We will avoid a trite, flippant, superficial, frivolous atmosphere, setting an example of reverence, passion, and wonder meaning that we don't need smoke machines in here to worship God on Sunday. Number seven, in spirit and in truth, we will endeavor to promote a mindset that songs do not equal worship. Songs are a means of worship if they communicate gospel truth. 
True, authentic worship incorporates our entire life and is not based on a place, an event, or ritualistic actions. From John chapter 4, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Number eight, historic and modern. Historic and modern. From Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. So we will not forsake historic music containing gospel truth, nor will we cling to historic songs for the sake of tradition. Rather, we will strive to choose music with the intent to magnify God, always striving to enlighten people to the characteristics of the one true God. Meaning that when we sing hymns, we don't do it just for the sake of being traditional. Or when we sing a new song that was written just this past year, we don't do it just for the sake of being modern or contemporary, you know, uh, relevant and contemporary. We sing songs that contain the truth of the gospel, and we sing songs that will enlighten us to the truths of the gospel and magnify our great God. The ninth thing and the last thing is this, undistracting excellence. Undistracting excellence. What I mean by this is that ministry done with excellence reflects God. Ministry done with excellence reflects God. And so we will strive to sing, to play, pray, teach, give, and go in such a way that people's attention will not be diverted from God by shoddy ministry nor by excessive finesse elegance, or refinement. Natural, undistracting excellence will let the truth and the beauty of God shine through. So that's our philosophy of corporate worship. On your notes, the Roman numeral number four, next is, I'd like to talk about the posture of corporate worship. The Bible describes the innate postures of response to God when people are in the presence of God. The writers of the Bible don't shy away from the postures of worship at all. What I mean by this, if, if God were to literally show up here this morning in visible form, our response to him would probably all across the board be the same, and it would be to fall on our faces in reverence. Whether you believe in him or not, if that were to happen here in this place, that would be our response, to fall on our face. And in the words of Isaiah, woe to me, I am undone. So in the presence of God, God... One of the postures is that God's people literally fall on their face in reverence. This comes from Genesis chapter 17, verse 3. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and you may multiply and multiply you greatly. And then Abraham fell on his face. Now, that phrase, fell on his face, probably doesn't mean that Abraham like fell on his face like someone who's passed out. Like he passed out and his face was the first to meet the floor, like Benny Hinn nonsense. That's probably not what it means, okay? It probably means exactly what it means in Nehemiah chapter eight and verse six where it says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him saying, amen, amen, lifting their hands and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Reverence, speaking of a posture of reverence. 
Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28 says, The appearance of the brightness all around, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. I put my face to the ground. Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. Revelation 5, 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Uh, In the presence of God, the next thing is, whenever whenever people are in the presence of God, they raise their hands in worship. We can see that in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven, above, or on earth, beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, and at the evening sacrifice, I, Ezra, rose from my fasting with, the, with my garment of, and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, when Ezra reads the law to the people, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him saying, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In reverence, Psalms chapter 63, David, whenever he was in the wilderness of Judah, he said, because of your steadfast love, is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Psalm 134, come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Psalm 141, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. In the presence of God, people lift their hands in reverence and worship to him. It's a posture, scriptural posture of worship. Now, this isn't in what I've written here this morning, but have you ever, on Sunday mornings, I don't get to actually raise my hands very often because one hand is tied up doing this on the guitar and the other one is doing the other thing on the guitar, right? Like both hands are actively doing something. But there have been moments on Sunday morning where your singing is coming our direction, Right? And our singing is coming your direction. And there have been moments on Sunday where I wish that I could stop and just raise my hands. Not to you, but to God. And, and there have just been moments that I wish I could do that. Most of those moments, if, if, you were at, if you were a fly on the wall at my house, most of those moments come on a Friday night or a Saturday night uh, whenever I'm getting ready for the next morning and I'm listening to... Uh, the songs for Sunday morning, and I'm sitting there in the quiet, and tears flow, and hands in the air in reverence what the psalmist is talking about. I pray that you have those moments on your own as well, um, not just here when we're gathered, but in those quiet moments. So just know that I'm not able to raise my hands all the time. That's what it, I'm feeling inside, and it needs to be okay for you to feel that way also, all right? Anyway. 
in the presence of God, the next thing is God's people bow down and worship. That comes from Exodus 34, verse 8, Psalm chapter 5, verse 7, Isaiah chapter 66, 23, uh, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 11. In the presence of God, the next thing is God's people clap their hands in worship. That's scriptural, Psalm 47, 1. Now, clap your hands in worship. Like, I've, I've tried to get us to do this, like, in, in here a whole lot of times, and I think it's just because we might be rhythmically challenged. I don't know. Like, like uh, doing two things at one time kind of thing where you, you have to sing and, and you have to say the right words and you have to keep on the beat. Kind of, that might be it, but it's scriptural and it's biblical, and if, if it ever just needs to come out with, from you, we clap to, to glorify God because it's a physical, it's an audible response of worship. And so if you ever need a verse to fall back on, Mike said that even if, even, if I'm off, even if I'm off beat, I can still clap. It's right here in Psalm 47, verse 1. Just want to make that okay for you to do. And I would be remiss, okay, if I didn't mention one last posture that I find in the presence of God, God's people dance in worship. Now, some of you, I can hear your quiet thoughts going on inside your head as I just said that, okay? Like, just hang on there, uh, Kevin Bacon. <laughs> You're not going to get me to kick off my Sunday shoes in here. Just relax for a minute, okay? Uh, I, don't, I don't even know how to dance. My wife can attest to that. I don't know how to dance, and I'm just relaying a couple of, couple of scriptural examples of Biblical posture of worship, and so let's, let's just get through this, okay? <laughs> Psalm 149, verse 3 says, let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him. Uh, Psalm 150, verse 4 says, praise him with the trumpet sound, praise him with the lute and the harp, praise him with the tambourine, that's Sabrina Griffin, and, and praise him with dance, that's our own Grace Hudson. By the way, our Grace Hudson has been accepted to the Texas Ballet Theater. Um, It is a huge honor for her, Um, huge accomplishment. She starts classes on August the 14th, and if you've never seen Grace dance in one of her ballets, you need to know, and you would know if you saw this, that she truly gives her giftedness of dance back to the Lord in worship. I've seen it, and I I can tell it that what she is doing, the kinetics that she's connecting to the music are going straight up to her God in worship. Praise him with the strings. Mara, Jerry, George, Matt, Donnie says praise him with sounding cymbals. James, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. That would be our guest drummer, Ryan Baker. Uh, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's all of us. King David wasn't just a man after God's own heart. He was also a king who apparently loved to cut a rug. 1 Samuel 21, 11 records that David's victory over Goliath caused many people in Israel to sing and to dance. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14, when the ark was returned to Jerusalem, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And I might add, he danced with very little modesty. <laughs> Psalm chapter 30, verse 11 and 12, the psalmist is speaking directly to God. He said, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. 
David didn't realize it, but his singing and dancing and joy simply pointed to the real Lord of the dance, who is Jesus Christ. Only Christ can turn our weeping, only Christ can turn our regret over sin, only Christ can turn our brokenness, our fear, into a dance of hope and joy. Only Christ can do that. The point is this. Whatever our posture is here in this place during corporate worship, our postures don't distract, but rather they display God's glory. Our postures don't distract, they display God's glory. Throughout the Bible, the posture and physical expressions of true worship, they don't distract from God's glory, they display it. And what I mean by that is this. Think about it. When the president of the United States walks down the steps from Air Force One, the servicemen stand in a concrete salute at the bottom of the stairs. Have you ever noticed anyone telling the, the servicemen to stop that? You're drawing attention to yourself. Stop that. You're distracting. No one's ever said that, right? Because the posture of the servicemen is not distracting from the authority of the president. It's actually displaying the authority of the president. And the same is true of our postures in corporate worship. When we see people in the presence of God bowing down or, or raising authentic hands in spiritual worship, we are not to look to them, but through them and, and see the victorious Christ who is cherished and worshipped. Or when Pastor Tim on a Sunday morning says something in his sermon that causes clapping or applause from the congregation, it doesn't distract, does it? It doesn't distract. It, it actually displays a physical congregational amen. It's, it's like a physical saying, what you just said is true, Amen. There is no distraction. It displays the glory of God. And if you never actually uh, shouted out amen in the middle, middle of a sermon before, you need to try that sometime. Like, it's actually one of the most liberating things I've ever done. Like, whenever you're just pent up inside and it has to come out, let it be an amen. Just ask Rance or, or Brother Bailey Hill in the back. It doesn't distract. It displays the glory of God in that moment, and it edifies us as the church encourages us and focuses us, not to whoever's standing in the pulpit, but it focuses us to Christ. Our bodies were created to display that God is completely more valuable than anything else in this world. Uh, let me back up to uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. It says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, not this room, okay? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. In Scripture, as people come face to face with the ever-increasing beauty and glory of God, they respond in worshipful, physical expressions that communicate vertically to God and horizontally to others. And these physical expressions are literally saying that Christ must increase and I must decrease. So as we observe humble, physical expressions of the Holy Spirit, of Holy Spirit-fueled worship, we're not being distracted from God, but directed to Him. The authentic raised hand, the genuine bowed knee, the clapping of hands, postures of worship that declare, literally, see the sovereignty of Christ, see His glory, see His victory, and worship Him. 
Christopher Asmus, a guest writer for DesiringGod.org, says this. He says, so on Sunday morning, this next Sunday, should we seek to draw attention to our physical posture and expressions of worship? He says, of course not. Jesus warns that beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That was from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus reserved his harshest words for those who practice an external worship that is not overflowing from an internal well of love and delight in God. Rather, we should spiritually and physically worship our Lord with humble passion and authenticity. And when people see our raised hand or bowed knee, they, may they see the sovereign and supreme Christ at whose at whose name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I want you to be reminded of an amazing thought about God. When we're in this room together, or anywhere else together, singing, I want you to think about something. I want you to be reminded of something. Has it ever occurred to you that God is actually rejoicing over his redeemed people here. That as you are singing to God, God is rejoicing over his redeemed people, over his, re- over his work, his accomplishment in redemption. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Zephaniah says, chapter three, verse 17, it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. If that that doesn't start your tractor, (laughs) let me point you to another story in in Luke chapter 6. A beautiful story of, of worshiping God for who he is, period and what he's done. Luke chapter 6, and he, the prodigal son, arose and came to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he actually called one of the servants and asked the servant what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe back, he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and he refused to go in and his father came out and entreated him. But the father said, he said to his father, he said, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command and yet you never even gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, your son of yours who came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. 
And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to be it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost, and now he's found. When we are gathered together for corporate worship here in this room, as we recite the gospel to one another and to God, how the story of how God the Father sought us out, how the Father has received us back safe and sound, how can we not sing and make music to God in our hearts? How can we possibly remain silent or still in this room? We should ever increasingly be rejoicing over this story. Why should we ever remain at a distance like the older brother, looking in through the window at the celebration going on inside? My prayer for all of us is that by the Holy Spirit, we would be able to hear the Father every Sunday morning speaking to us in the gospel that we would hear him say, son, daughter, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And when we, like the older brother, remain on the outside, off of the dance floor of God's grace and joy, that we would run to God and find forgiveness, we would find restoration, and that we would find joy in our singing. I pray that we would realize that even right now that Jesus continues to pray on our behalf, that we might know and, and experience the fullness of his joy. Every Sunday as we welcome one another with Christian love and as we sing loudly together, as we play these instruments, as we give our first fruits in thankful tithing, as we open our Bibles together and hear the gospel preached, as we receive the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, as we witness baptism, I pray that we as a church would bless God. For in doing so, we point each other straight to Christ. We've gathered here today for one purpose, and that is to worship, to give thanks to God. I like Louis Giglio's definition still to this day. He says this, because worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is, period, and for what he has done, period, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. What he means by that, by putting a period right in the middle, is people, if God had never done a single thing on our behalf, he is still God. And he deserves all of our worship. But aren't you glad that God did act on our behalf? All the fullness of God came down in the person of Jesus Christ, dividing our timeline, this world, with a cataclysmic event on that old rugged cross. And the empty tomb would forever give creation even all the more reason to worship God. Church, worship is not a noun. Worship is a verb. Worship is not a spectator event. Worship is the activity 
of our life. All of our strength, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our body. Worship is our entire life's response to God for who He is and for what He has done. What we do and say and sing in this room is just a minuscule glimpse of an attempt of what heaven will be like someday. Heaven is a never-ending celebration party of millions and millions of people throughout all of history gathered together as far as the eye can see. Can you picture it in your mind? (laughs) People of every race, every color, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every era of history, this white cloud, white hot cloud of worshipers, and in the center of it is the champion Son of God. This is not, um, this is not even a, a close attempt at what it will be like in heaven, but it's our, it's our best attempt on Sundays. And if this is amazing for us to get together and worship, just think about what it will be like on that day. This is just the tailgate party. The big party is in the stadium. At the center of it is Jesus Christ. One day we will sing loudly to King Jesus with all of our might, all of our personal inhibitions, cultural prohibitions, and sinful limitations will be absolutely gone. And may that day of unhindered joy shape how we worship this very Sunday and every Sunday as the church gathered at Nixa. Would you stand with me and let's sing this next and last song together and let's sing it loud.